Our passage today is from Galatians 6, 11 through 18. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that may may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Grace. I feel accepted. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We cherish it. We love it. And uh, as we are closing Galatians, as our final study of Galatians this morning, Lord, would you, as always, show up? And so, Lord, uh, we ask for your presence because that is what we cherish most here. We desire to deepen our relationship with you, not just to gain further understanding of your word, not just to have some warm fuzzies or some conviction going on in our life, but that we desire to be changed people leaving here to accomplish your mission of making disciples of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, we are at our last study of Galatians. I know, so sad, so sad. I think it was just nine studies, which is much different from when we studied Luke, which was like two and a half years. So, you know, we just, that's how we roll. Just a really, really wonderful letter that Paul wrote to the Galatian churches, and that can be summarized in just a really simple phrase, really, freedom in Jesus. That's Galatians, freedom in Jesus. Freedom that just can't be attained any other way. It's a liberty from any notion that we need to earn our way to God. And so Paul ended this letter with, with some uh, final knockout blows to, to these false teachers like the Judaizers who sought to lead the Galatian churches astray with their false doctrine. And within these final knockout blows here that Paul's going to deliver here in the last few verses of Galatians, we're going to find that Paul clues us in on some very, very important Christian essentials, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. There's this uh, German theologian named Rupertus Meldenius, we'll just call him Rupert, and he wrote this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, many attribute that quote to Augustine, but it was Meldenius who wrote that phrase about Christian unity. And so this is what we're going to be talking about, just in the essentials, this unity that we are to have as Christians. And as we're looking at these concluding verses of Galatians, we're going to discover three of these essentials within this text. First is the authority of the Bible, and we're going to take a look at that. Secondly is the all-important role of the cross, and we're going to take a look at that. And then third, the need of regeneration, of being a new creation, of a new birth. And so we'll take a look at those three things. First, the authority of the Bible. Verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. 
In verse 11, Paul authenticated his own writing, and he wanted to emphasize the importance of the last part of this letter. Now, if you turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul wrote this. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So an authentication happening and this emphasizing happening here. But more important than why Paul wrote with such large letters is a foundational underlying Christian essential. And the question to ask is, why are Paul's writings any more important than any other person who's written about God in all of history? Why is his writing more important? And this brings us to our Christian essential. It's the authority of the Bible. The authority of the Bible. Paul recognized the authority given to him by God. And you take a look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now jump over to chapter 5, verse 10, Galatians. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Now what view is he talking about? The view he wrote about in the letter about Christian freedom in Galatians. Back to the verse, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever it is. Paul wrote about the authority of Scripture, written by those who have apostolic authority. And I covered much of that back in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. So if you have questions about that, please go back and listen to that. But Paul was one who was given the task to write with authority. And the Bible was written by those who were given the authority by God to write the Scriptures. Now the Judaizers, they declared their own authority in writing their own laws. And so they started making claims that they themselves had authority to determine what the church was to believe and what the church should do. And they claimed that they knew what the church required and what they were doing was the right way to go about a relationship with God. And so here Paul is just, he couldn't disagree more. He strongly disagreed, and so he wrote this letter to the Galatian churches to expose their false teachings, and it worked. It worked, because Paul convincingly reinforced the authority of the Bible as well as the authority given to him as an apostle. Now, notice this. The authority of the Bible and the authority given to Paul as an apostle did not come from the church. Paul's gospel message, Paul's mission, came from Jesus. It's not from the church. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's from God himself. Now realize that the gospel we have is not a man-made gospel. Gospel. It is not man-made good news. The mission given to you, the mission given to me, the load we are to bear, what we talked about several weeks ago, the good that is assigned for you to do is from God. That's from God. Our gospel message, our mission to make disciples, that is a divine mission. And if anyone takes away from the Bible or adds to it, false teacher, false teacher, when Paul wrote in verse 11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He knew where his authority came from. 
He knew where his mission came from. He knew where the gospel message came from. And the thing is, there is no such thing as an apostolic succession, where apostleship is given to someone else to carry on the apostles' work. That's not biblical. Apostleship is only given by God, and God gives that authority. The authority we have as apostles is not because God made us apostles, but it's because we have the authority of the Bible. That's what gives us authority. And the authority we have is from the Bible. It's not from any church. It's from the Word. It's from the Word of God. The Bible is the authority of the church. The church is not the authority of the Bible. This is a big problem in today's church. Authority is derived from the Bible. We don't dictate the other way around. Not any person, organization, government, religion, culture. The Bible is our authority. And if you do a study about the decline of any Christian denomination, all you really have to do is look at when they stopped looking at the Bible as the authority. That's all you really have to do. Biblical authority is paramount. And if the church doesn't have a solid foundation in the Bible, its authority, it's going to crumble. The first Christian essential, the authority of the Bible. Now the second one. The role of the cross. The all-important role of the cross. Starting in verse 12 here. Galatians 6. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross is what Paul preached about, what Paul boasted about. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. It's the cross. According to the will of our God and Father. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The cross. Galatians 3.1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, this Christian essential of the cross is folly to many of those who are not Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, why is it folly to those who are perishing? Because the cross is a big old mirror. The cross holds up this mirror and it points out that you got something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. And, And the cross doesn't reflect perfection in people, otherwise it wouldn't be necessary. The cross reveals how messed up we really are. Now, who wants to be told that they're messed up? Who wants to be told that something is wrong with them? Unless you highly value truth. That's why you look in the mirror, right? Because when you wake up, you're a pretty hot mess. That's why you look in the mirror. You want to see the truth. But if you don't want to see the truth, then you ignore the mirror. You don't want to see that. Because you want to just 
kind of go on with however you want. So who wants to be told you're a sinner? You need God. That you can't do anything except have faith in the one who hung on the cross in your place. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now what was the blessing of Abraham? Well, I think first we have to look at who Abraham was. Who was Abraham? Abraham was a friend of God. A friend of God. Now, because of sin, we are born enemies of God. So, how does one born as an enemy of God become a friend of God? Now, the false teachers will say, well, you have to do this, and you have to do that. And to become a friend of God, then you have to do these things. And it's just like the Judaizers, because the Judaizers were saying, friend of God, you need to get circumcised. That's a messed up friend that makes you get circumcised, right? I mean, that's messed up. Or, or like many people believe, I'm relatively good. I'm relatively moral. I'm a friend of God. I, I kind of stand for the same things as God. According to the authority of the Bible, you're wrong. You're wrong. The only way to become a friend of God is through Jesus' death on the cross. God is holy. God is just. He judges sin. So unless that sin is taken from you, unless that penalty is taken from you, you're guilty. And so that's what Jesus did. He bore your sin on the cross. Jesus bore our penalty of sin because we can't free ourselves from its enslavement. There is no other way to be free from the bondage of sin unless you pay. You personally pay. But if you personally pay, then you're dead. There is no relationship. You're dead. And so Jesus pays the penalty. Then you can have life. And there is no amount of religion and there's no amount of good that one can do to free themselves from the bondage of sin. It is only through trusting Jesus to lift that burden of sin that one may be free from it. And that is an act of faith. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. If there is any other way to God, then the cross is unnecessary. Right? It's unnecessary. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So the cross, what Jesus did to atone our sins, the role of the cross, that is an Christian essential. Because without it, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no way to God. And this exclusive claim of salvation, that doesn't sit well with people. Because we like to have options. We don't like exclusivity. We like to have options. We like to determine how we want to do things. Now, think about this. Christianity would be accepted just like any other religion out there if it weren't for the cross. Wouldn't it? It would be the same thing. But if there is no cross, there is no Christianity. It's the cross that offends people. People are not offended by us doing good works, by us being advocates of justice, 
by us praying and being moral people and volunteering and serving our community. No one has a problem with that. Bay Area people love that stuff. But you bring in the cross, you've crossed them. Right? That, seriously. We have a community garden back there. Everything's fine with the neighborhood and stuff like that until we put up a cross. The big upheaval in the community. For me, I'm like, I thought we paid rent. So we're working those things out and you can pray for me. <laughs> the cross points out that we aren't as good as we think we are. That's what the cross does. It shows us who we really are and it shows us you're not all that. You're not all that. And the only way to be free from the sin it reveals is to accept and trust by faith that Jesus bore our sins on the cross to cleanse us of our sins. That's the only way for the atonement of our sins. And that exclusive claim, that just bothers people to no end. How can you guys be so arrogant? But there is no Christianity without a cross. Christianity is not just knowledge and feelings about God. Christianity is a relationship with God. And that's impossible without the cross. There is no relationship. And without acknowledging you are a sinner in need of Jesus as your Savior, that relationship is impossible. No cross, no relationship with God. Christianity is living a life with God. And you can't have that without the cross. So the first two Christian essentials, the first one, the authority of the Bible, the second one, the all-important role of the cross, and now the third. The need of regeneration. Yes, I kind of plugged our church name in there. <laughs> New creation. Okay, new birth. Starting verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Regeneration. New birth. Born again. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Now, what is the context of these verses? Well, we know the Judaizers believe that this ritual act of circumcision played a role in salvation for Christ followers. False. What they essentially were saying was that, you know, Jesus' death on the cross, not enough. You also have to do this. That something more, and circumcision in their case, that that needed to be done for the redemption of sins. Now, why was this ritual so important to them? And to find that out, you kind of have to look back a few verses to verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. First reason the ritual was important to them. A good showing of the flesh. They wanted to be looked upon favorably by the Jews around them who weren't so happy that this Christianity was emerging. And one of the ways they attempted to do this was carry forward rituals from their Judaism like circumcision. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it describes them. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching, brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's the Judaizers. And so they wanted to gain favor from the Jewish community by showing outwardly that they were still following their rituals. See, hey, we're not that different. See, we still get circumcised. That's just not one I would have picked, though. And so Paul then writes a letter to them, right? They're wrong. These guys are wrong. And so there are religious groups 
today, just like the Judaizers that are requiring other things, rituals to be done for salvation. It's not just simply faith in Jesus Christ by faith through grace. It's something more. So they'll tack on something, and they'll tack on something like baptism, right? Baptism, where they'll say, unless you are baptized according to the custom of whomever or whatever, so whomever, John the Baptist or whatever, oh, our church, our church, you cannot be saved. But we know this to be false because Jesus said to the man next to him on the cross, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He wasn't baptized. Right? Baptism is not a prerequisite of salvation from sin. It is a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but it's not a requirement for salvation. And religious rituals are not the gospel. And so whenever an act is introduced as a way to earn our way to God, that's not right. It's false. It is only by grace through faith in Jesus that we are saved. It's nothing else. Nothing else. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation with God. And whenever there's a heavier emphasis on changing the external more than the internal, you need to question how one becomes a new creation that way. Can one truly regenerate from the outside in? Because we don't see evidence for that in the Bible. You look at the Judaizers or the Pharisees or the scribes or religious people today. Does it happen that way? Regeneration happens from within. Right? The external stuff tends to feed the flesh because once you start getting the external stuff down, it starts feeding your pride and you're like, yeah, I'm pretty good at that. I'm good at that. And you start kind of continuing to hide behind the religious facades when inside things aren't just quite right. Another reason for this ritual that they thought was so important to them is that it helped them not to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Right back in verse 12, the latter part. That they could hide behind their rituals and not emphasize the all-important role of the cross for the salvation of their sins. Now you take a look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So all these rituals, all these external acts, turning out to be burdensome. And these guys really aren't willing to lift a finger to help people through this. Verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Phylacteries are those boxes that you see on people's head, the Orthodox Jews when they pray. Those things on their head. Because they want to be seen as godly people, right? So they put these boxes, and if they're more holy, they put bigger boxes, because inside are scriptures. So they're like, I see all these scriptures I'm meditating on? Oh, they walk around with a big old box in them, like a bobblehead or something. Even though inside, that might not be the case. But they're trying to show outwardly, hey, I'm holy. Check out my box, I can hardly hold up my head. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Rabbi, hey, what's up? I can't really turn and see you because I got this big old box on my head. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. See, Jesus is not interested in the appearance of external godliness if the internal godliness is not there. There must be a new birth, a new creation, a regeneration, and that's not easy. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, what are the last days? The last days are the time between the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago and his second coming. So in other words, right now. Okay? There will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Sound familiar? They appear godly, but they aren't. They appear good, but they aren't. There's no substance behind the appearance, and that's happening today. People who go to church, people who read their Bible and they pray and they serve and they do all these sorts of things, godly things, but it's just an appearance of godliness because there hasn't been a regeneration within. They aren't a new creation. Things are just kind of done religiously, ritualistically, and there's an appearance of godliness, but they're denying the power of God. The need of regeneration is a must. That is a Christian essential. Now notice this, that Paul didn't swing from don't be over-ritualistic, don't be over-religious to don't be religious at all and don't be ritualistic at all. He didn't swing from one side to the other, right? In Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, he wrote this, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's not this and it's not this. It's something totally new, right? What counts is a new creation. This is a Christian essential that there is regeneration in you, that you are a new creation. You are a changed person inside and out. Baptism doesn't cleanse you from your sins. Right? Neither does going to church and reading your Bible and praying or all those other religious things that we do. It's your faith and that you are a new creation regenerated by the power of Jesus. And it's not that we don't practice rituals or we don't do those things like worship and pray and study the Bible and those things. Because we do those things every week, right? We fellowship and we take communion. We do those every week. And there's other religious ceremonies that we take part in like baptism and marriage ceremonies, right? And hopefully those aren't more than one time. But all the external religious ceremonies and rituals, they are empty without that internal transformation, without becoming a new creation, without being regenerated. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Take a look at Nicodemus in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Translation, this guy was deeply religious. He's a Pharisee, extremely religious. You can guarantee he tithed, you can guarantee he served, he studied, he prayed, he meditated, he fasted, he did all those religious things. Now if external acts were the way to God, this guy had it. It was this guy. But it isn't about the external acts as we will read in the following verses. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, a new creation, regenerated, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so in other words, you mean all my religious stuff isn't the way to the kingdom? Everything that I'm about, everything that I've committed my life to to become a Pharisee, that's no good? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. No one else can do it for you. You. You don't enter the kingdom of God through your spouse, your parents, your grandparents, your church, your culture, your upbringing. You must be born again. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, the question isn't, what have you done to enter the kingdom of God? Because you can't do anything to enter the kingdom of God. The question is, are you born of God? Are you born of God? And so you see how we can't push people into making a decision to become a Christian. Right? You can't push your way to do that. That's not to say we don't encourage them to seek God. But realize people can't earn their way into the kingdom. So they can't do a bunch of stuff to say, oh, now I'm a Christian. They have to be born of God. By faith, through grace. And how do we know someone is born of God? 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Are you born of God this morning? And the question isn't, are you perfect? Are you sinless? Because none of us are. The question is, has the practice, has the habit of sinning in your life, has it stopped? Practicing it, the habit of it. And if not, what's changed about you? Are you really born again then? Are you really a new creation? Are you really regenerated if those things haven't changed in you? And how are you any different from any other religious person who looks good and godly on the outside, but there's no spiritual power from within? There has to be a regeneration. There has to be a new creation. It's not about church attendance. It's not about feelings you have about God. Are you a new creation? Are you born again? What are the signs that Jesus is in your life? Here's a sign. You hear his voice. You hear his voice. Now some of you might be freaking. You've heard Jesus' voice? Take a look at John chapter 11, verse 33. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Think about this. In all the Roman catacombs and stuff, you would think that Jesus is, or the cross would be the most popular graffiti. Christians graffitied back then, so naughty. But they did a sign of Lazarus. That's the most popular sign out there. 
Now think about this. How does one who was once dead hear Jesus? How does someone who was once dead act upon Jesus' command? He's born again. He's a new creation. You who are children of God, you were once dead in your sins, but you heard the voice of God say, come out. Come out. You can come out like that. And you heard the voice of Jesus and you acted upon his command. And so those without Jesus, they're still in the tomb. They're dead. Spiritually dead. How are they going to be born again? They have to hear the Lord's voice. They have to hear his command. And you can't force them. You can't go up to them, open your ear! Come on, man, work harder. Just take the linen off of your ear. He's dead. He's dead. Can't hear. Are you born again this morning? Are you born again this morning? It's not about religious acts, because you can make the hole bigger in the linen cloth, or you can do all this, but it's not going to work, right? It's whether you're a new creation. Regeneration is a Christian essential. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Pretty exclusive to me. Now how do you have the Son? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you know you are a Christian this morning? How? How? Because you do good things? Because you go to church? Because you read the Bible? Because you pray? No. Have you been regenerated? Is there evidence of a new creation from who you once were to who you are right now? Not what you do religiously, that you do more religious things now than you did before. That's not it. That's not it. Who you are is different. Your being is different. That you have been supernaturally touched by God because at a time when you hated people, now you love people. At a time when you just couldn't forgive people because they wronged you, to you can forgive them. Right? And it's not about tolerance. It's about a real love. And so this was the Galatians, right? Galatians were confronted with this act of all this external stuff. And like, oh, really? The Judaizers say we've got to circumcise, we've got to do this. And so people were giving them all these external things that they had to do. And Paul was like, going down the wrong path. By grace through faith alone in Jesus, that's it. Jesus freed you from all that other stuff. There's freedom in Jesus. You don't have to go through all those ritualistic things. Not that those things are bad, but those things are more of a acknowledgement, a profession of who you really are already on the inside. It's not the other way around. 
I'm out of time. It's 10.45. That was Galatians. Love it. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you so much for your servant, Paul, who has nothing to boast about except for the cross of Christ. And we ask, God, that we would all leave here a new creation, that we would all leave here understanding the authority of the Bible, understanding the importance of the cross. And as we know that in our heads, Lord, may that be reflected in our lives. May that be reflected in the persons we are internally, that it just kind of flows out of us. I thank you for everyone here. I pray, Lord, your blessing upon them. I pray for your Holy Spirit to fill them to do amazing works beyond their ability and capabilities and giftings that they would change people's lives because they have the gospel in them. That those people will hear your voice come out of their tomb. In Jesus' name, amen.